Hey everyone, and welcome to The State of the Planet, a conversation series where we sit with thought leaders and innovators to discuss, you guessed it, the state of the planet. This week, we are sitting down with Jesse Beckett-Parr of CCOF. In fact, she's the foundation director, and we will be discussing the state of organics, the state of soil, and who knows where else we will go. Jesse, thank you so much for being here, and welcome. Thanks so much, Gabe. It's great to be here. Well, I know that you have just such a rich history of agriculture, and it really started in the soil. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about you and Symphony of Soil and how you are now leading the nonprofit um, arm of CCOF. Sure. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for asking. So I am the daughter of... um, conventional farmers. My mom married a conventional lettuce grower from the Salinas Valley when I was seven. And he grew very large scale conventional lettuce. And he was an innovator in the Salinas Valley's salad mixed revolution. So you can remember when lettuce went from iceberg lettuce to fabulous hearts of romaine and good salad mix. And our kitchen was test kitchen number one for that revolution happening uh, in the 90s in Central Coast, California. Responsible for like the mescaline mix. No, not responsible for, but (laughs) one of the innovators. There was a whole bunch of people, you know, um, the folks who founded Earthbound Farms were among them, but also other kind of bigger players uh, that got into the salad mix revolution. But there were a lot of people trying to figure out how to make shelf stable lettuce happen (laughs) in a lot Mm. of different ways. And my stepdad, Jay Cupham, was among them. And so I, I grew up, uh, like most kids, not paying too much attention to what their parents are doing, you know, brought to work into the packing houses in Salinas. They had a couple hundred employees packing uh, lettuce and shipping it across the country. And I wasn't really paying attention uh, until my stepdad got diagnosed with stage four colon cancer when I was in middle school. And our household conversation around food and agriculture really changed overnight. My mom, who was hellbent on saving this man's life, who she was very much in love with, threw out all the food in our kitchen, and she bought a stainless steel juicer, and she was bound and determined to save his life through the course of food as medicine, coupling with a lot of Western intervention, chemotherapy, radiation, that type of thing. And so overnight, I went from eating this standard American diet of hot dogs and craft macaroni and cheese to being woken up every morning with fresh celery juice, which for a 12 or 13 year old was pretty radical. And it wasn't entirely welcome. <laughs> I was like, what did you do with all the food in the house? What, what's the deal? Um, yeah. And as they were doing that, there was conversations every night in our living room of like, we think that this is because of agriculture. Um, my stepdad had grown up in the Salinas Valley. He'd been working in agriculture all his life. He was only 48 when he was diagnosed, which at the time to me seemed like he was really old, but I now know that 48 may not even be midlife. So they started to transition their business towards organic, uh, letting go of certain patents that they were no longer interested in holding, trying to figure out how they could transition the farming entity towards organic. And this was in the mid-1990s. And while organic had been happening for quite some time, as you'll know from CCUF's history, um, CCUF, where I work, California Certified Organic Farmers, was founded in 1973. So there had been organic for 20, 20-something years all over the country, 
uh, as an entity certification, that whole thing, but it really hadn't taken hold uh, where I was living. It was still considered pretty fringe. Um, and so they started to take me to conferences and get Seed Savers magazine and uh, different different publications were on the living room, dining room table. And I was picking it up and reading it uh, from in middle school and high school. And it wasn't until after he passed when I was a senior in high school that I really made that decision that I was going to dedicate my life to organic agriculture uh, in all of its different forms. And I've been really privileged to be able to do that. Uh, thanks to a lot of work the, from a lot of people over the many decades to build the industry where you and I both now get to, 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 to work and support. Um, wow. So that's, that's how I got into it. That's the, the entree. I think everybody's got a, everybody's got a story about where they come from and what they bring to the work. And that's, I feel like my life history and where I come from very much aligns with the mission and vision of the organization where I've been privileged to work for the last eight years. So um, yeah, CCOF, California Certified Organic Farmers is how we were founded in 1973. And uh, our vision is a world where organic is the norm. Well, imagine, imagine a world where I want that world organic is not certified because everything is organic, right? Like right. imagine a world where certification agencies don't need to exist because the types of things that we're working to prevent folks from using, encourage folks not to use are no longer available. They're prohibited substances. Well, first off, thank you so much for sharing that story. It, it, it's remarkable and and touching. And I, and I, I think it's very inspiring that you had such a formative experience that you've, you know, segued into really making a difference. And um, I do want to imagine the world where organic is the norm. And when, when I think about it, it should be the norm. You should have to go and through some, some hoops and, and, hurdles to use toxic chemicals like that just seems, you know, sort of like a no brainer. But I mean, I know that you, you made symphony of soil and I mean, where in your career did that start? And so after you decide I'm going to dedicate my life to organic, what happens next? Oh yeah. Well, um, because I had already launched myself onto the trajectory set up by my more self-centered teenage self, I landed in New York, uh, for college because I had right, this imagination that I was going to be an actress. Yep. Liberal arts schools unite. Um, so I, I landed at Sarah Lawrence, which is just outside of New York city, small liberal arts school, incredible school. Again, what a privilege to go to school there. And they looked at me and they were very sure that I was an environmentalist before I was sure about that. Like I wrote all my college entrance exams on uh, environmental toxicity and GMOs. <laughs> and um, they were like, we think you should take an environmental studies class. And so I had a great mentor teacher, Charles Zerner, who's just about to retire, I'm still in touch with him. And um, I read all, all of, I read the canon, the sustainable agriculture canon. We started with um, Michael Pollan's The Botany of Desire, which is a book he wrote a couple books before uh, Omnivore Just Dilemma made him really popular. And Marion Nestle and a whole bunch of other folks, Eric Schlosser, Fast Food Nation. And I was like, oh yeah, this is it. I'm finding my people. 
So I, um, I worked all through college. I, I got to work for the Community Food Security Coalition, which is no longer around, but they were an incredible nonprofit national organization working on the front lines of community food security. Um, mm-hmm. And I worked in food systems unions in the basements of New York City restaurants, um, HRE Local 100, which then merged with SEIU, organizing, um, doing organizing in restaurants and hotel employees for unionization. And uh, along the way, I was helping figure out how to transform school food. And I was working with students across the country on how do we get corporate food out of dining halls in uh, college campuses and have folks be able to have access to, to good food on campus, which includes organic, but also local and a whole bunch of other things. And um, it was in one of those, uh, in one of my courses at Sarah Lawrence where Deborah Coons Garcia, who's an, an amazing woman, she was a friend of a professor of mine and she came in to teach a class and she was showing a pre-cut for her film, The Future of Food, which is the, the film that really jump-started the anti-GMO movement here in the United States. And she was showing an early cut of that. And I, I kind of bum-rushed her after class and I was like, I'll do anything, please just take me on. I'll, I, will work, I, I will work so hard for you. And, uh, and that was the beginning. I worked for her over the summer while I waited tables in San Francisco and I got um, to build out the community organizing strategy for the future of food, which was shown in, church basements and um, and community gardens all across the U.S. And so I got to help build out the community organizing strategy for the future of food. And then when I graduated from college, I said, hey, Deborah, are, do you have work? And she was like, you know, I, you can come manage my office. And I was like, hmm. oh, man, office management, that is just not my jam. And I was like, you know, I'll, I, you know, I'll touch base with you later, Deborah. You know, if you if you want to make a fo- a movie, I'm there. I'm all there for research. I'm happy to organize. I'm happy to do X, Y, and Z. But I, I cannot answer phones. I just, it's not my personality. Um, and so I, I kind of felt like I had put that one down. I, I put down that opportunity. Um, I, I got out some of my yayas by working on different organic farms in California, and I m- met up with Deborah at this fabulous food um, food festival that's called the Hose Down run by Full Belly Farm up in the Cape Valley outside of San Francisco. And uh, I, at the time I saw her again, I was covered in ice cream because I had taken a 10 hour ship scooping ice cream to pay my ticket to go to the event. And I was like surrounded by screaming children. And she walked up to me looking like a million dollars. She was in a fabulous dress with a great hat and a scarf. She, Deborah Garcia is Jerry Garcia's widow. And she's just got She's great. She's got great style. She's got the like, wow. um, you know, just I, I can only imagine fabulous air around her. And I'm like covered in ice cream, surrounded by three screaming children. I'm like, Deborah. And she, she looks at me. She goes, Jesse, I, you know, I really considered it. And I, I think I want you to come and, and make my next movie with me. And you don't have to run the office, but I'd love for you to travel around the world with me and make a film on soil. And I was <laughs> oh like, my God. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, a, yes, the bolt of lightning is happening. And I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm going to stop managing this farmer's market that I'm managing and move out of the shack on a mountain that I was working on this organic farm, which is fabulous. And I loved it. But, you know, I am a, I'm like a community organizer. And I want to be in the thick of it with humans. And I don't quite have a black thumb, but I was never meant to farm. I got mad respect for people who choose to, to, to farm and I want to support them doing everything that they're doing. And uh, I'm just not that good at it. So, yeah, so I joined Deborah, and it took us five years to make this film that was called Symphony of the Soil, which is really a love song to soil. And it was published, let's see, 
I think the first, uh, it was first published in about 2009, 2010. And um, yeah, we went to four different continents and we interviewed farmers and soil scientists and soil advocates and lovers in India and Norway and uh, North Africa, all over the U.S. And, you know, I was talking to someone recently that, that said something about the film saying, oh, yeah, that was OG soil, <laughs> OG right. soil material. And I guess um, I guess it is for for us in you know dominant american mainstream culture it feels like og it's only really 12 years ago but what i learned making that film is that um the real soil stewards are indigenous peoples of the world and that uh they are the og folks who know how to manage yeah. environments including soil restoration and sustainability um we got to meet some incredible people seed savers on the side of the mountain up at the top of India, close to Nepal, and people who were doing soil restoration for water basin management in the middle of India, um, people who were taking on and living and breathing techniques that are thousands of years old. So it was it was wow. an amazing ride, and I recommend the film to anyone. It's basically like a entry level soil science class if you know nothing about soil. It's a, a fabulous entree into understanding what soil is, how precious it is and how we are all dependent on this living skin of the earth. Yeah, wow, beautifully said, and thank you for sharing sharing that. I, it sounds like there was very few people uh, more qualified to be able to travel the world and tell those stories. Um, oh, no. I, could... I was like 22 <laughs> at the time. It's all yeah, good. Look, I was just... I, I, you know, I, but I do think that there's something to be said from, you know, almost... A, Look, I come from hospitality, right? And there's so much respect that I have for people who've worked, you know, every every job from dishwasher to host to busser to cook to manager to, you know, kind of running the show. And I couldn't help but think of that when you're telling your story uh, that you've had your hands in so many facets of of agriculture, of organics, of soil. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that to me is so cool. Right. It's not, hey, I just, you know, I saw, uh, you know, I saw this 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 film and, and now I'm into it because it's the thing of the moment. I mean, you truly have been uh, doing the work for so long. And so thank you for doing that, because um, I hope that it, people are kind of becoming hip to it at this point. Right. Uh, and it, it, the time, so. you know, there's no time like now, but uh, the time is certainly needs to be now if we're going to hopefully have a some soil for the future and um, without that who knows what we we will have and i also could not agree, agree with you more about indigenous peoples right we're, we're always looking for these technologies to to bail us out um and these innovative practices and i talk with my sister a lot about this who works at the earth institute um columbia and works in land and agriculture and extractive industries kind of area of it and she always just reminds me like this is you know these are indigenous practices we all of the wisdom and the knowledge to be able to uh, move forward is here it's just uh, you know it's it's really honoring that and, and and sort of looking back to look forward so okay so from from this film you know how did you end up at at CCOF and I, I think that there are some really fantastic things that 
you know, you guys are focused on, obviously, you know, pioneers in California. And I do know from our brief, you know, chat earlier, you take this solution oriented mindset, which I think is so important, um, right? Like, let's, let's focus on the solutions. We know there are problems, but (laughs) like any team, the reason that you're on the team is to bring solutions to the table, not to just point out problems. And I think we do a lot of problem pointing. So can you share a little bit more about, you know, kind of the state of organic uh, in the United States, the state of organic in California, and really how that is impacting uh, communities from an economic standpoint, from a climate change standpoint, and really the health and inequality that stems from some of these systems? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. So I landed at CCOF about eight years ago after making the the uh, decision that I didn't want to continue in film. They say if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you start to be an expert. And I had been doing film production, which is a little different than community food systems advocacy or mm-hmm. organizing. And uh, there was a fork in the road at one point, And I had a bit of an identity crisis, as we are, should probably do every 10 or 15 years to say, okay, mm-hmm. what's the reckoning? Is, this, is, is my work important? What am I doing with my life energy? And uh, all signs pointed to community food systems and not continuing in the film path. So uh, I went back to school. I got the necessary training I needed at Davis, went to the land grant here in California, um, got a second degree in community development through the College of Agriculture there. was fortunate to meet a lot of amazing folks along the way and have an additional great mentors at UC Davis, uh, and then worked in a bunch of different uh, nonprofit and government agencies uh, in California teaching and doing community organizing around food. Uh, California Climate Action Network, CalCAN, Pi Ranch, the local youth justice organization I worked for a bit. California FarmLink is a food and finance organization that works with low-income farmers to get access to capital and eventually landed at CCOF. Um, yeah, so a little bit more about CCOF. California Certified Organic Farmers is how we were founded. Uh, founded in 1973 by a group of farmers who wanted to get a price premium for this thing that they were calling organic. They were like, it's a whole lot more work. We want to be able to communicate it to people, what it means. And we want folks to recognize a brand and they know that the quality is assured in the products that have a symbol. Uh, They created a symbol, a hand-drawn symbol at the very beginning. Um, They self-certified for years. Farmers certified each other. And eventually the organization grew to a size where they needed to professionalize it and have staff. But by that time, it was many years in. Uh, It grew over time and CCUF was at the table to write the California organic standards. Here in California, we had California organic standards before we had national organic standards. And then we were also at the table together with groups across the country, Moses in the Midwest, NOFA in New York, Florida Organic Growers, Georgia Organics, a whole lot of different basically farmer first organizations that had been started by farmers to, to, to define this thing called organic. And we helped pass the national standards, which were passed in 2002. So when that national standard was passed, it created a legal framework, a national legal framework for organic certification. And CCUF is only one of dozens and dozens of people of, of organizations rather that certify to the organic standards. And we are, um, we are essentially deputized by the, the, by the USDA to be able to certify to the organic standards that they hold. And they hold us accountable. I don't know how many of your listeners know about 
how organic certification works, but the certification agency is the one that goes out and does the on-farm inspection and then reviews the paperwork. And there's someone in an office who's making sure that all the paperwork lines up and we account for your input and what you're going to put on your farm or in your processing and handling facility. But then we get audited by the USDA. And organic is the only type of certification that has that federal oversight over it. Mm. So that's just a little bit about the certification. So today, CCUF, we certify 4,300 members in 43 states and three countries. And we represent more operations than any other certifier. And like I said at the beginning, we're a, we're a nonprofit certification agency. So mm-hmm. we work towards that larger goal. It is not right. a for-profit business. It's a larger uh, vision-oriented business of a world where organic is the norm. And we have multiple different tax identities to be able to do that. We have a farmer advocacy organization, a, farm, a 501c5 with a farmer governance board, which is the parent organization. Um, mm-hmm. It's got a grassroots, democratically elected farmer governance board, very much based on what they all started in the 1970s. And then very we have cool. this certification company, which operates like an LLC. And then we have a 501c5, a 501c3 nonprofit, which is the organization that I run. And we do all the education and grant making to try to make that vision a reality. So, so if we're talking about, let's dig a little deeper into the vision, because I think that what has always astounded me is how much opportunity there is in the transition to organic. So how I mean, you said 4,300 across 43 states, I believe, mm-hmm. and that makes up what amount of farmland being certified organic? Because I read sure. a statistic that blew my mind. It was like a, it was like less than a percent or something. I, I could be totally wrong, but it was sure it was a very nominal amount. Yeah, in the United States, about 0.61 percent of all farmland acreage including rangeland is certified organic 0.61%. So there's a huge upside we have (laughs) less than 1% of all farmland in the United States is certified organic. So you might think because you see the USDA label a lot at stores on products that that means that there's a lot of, a lot of uh, farmland out there in the U S that's certified organic. There's more than there was. Um, Last time I looked, I could be wrong about this. Now it's probably a little bit more, but about a year ago, it was about 6% of the food uh, economy of all foods sold in the U.S. was certified organic. Um, So if you look at the differential between the amount of farmland that's certified organic in the United States and the amount of the food economy that's certified organic, where's that coming from? And it's coming from imports. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the grain that's grown, uh, that's, that's used in livestock operations and also in processed food in the United States is grown in Eastern Europe. A lot of the vegetables, especially off-season vegetables and fruit yeah. is grown in Mexico and Chile. Um, grain also comes from Canada. I mean, it's a, it's a world, it's a global market, just like the food market is. But um, there's a huge uh, potential for us to transition acres in the United States towards organic. And some states, uh, that's a national, that's a national averages, but some states are much farther ahead in how much they've been able to transition towards organic. So California just broke 10%. So in California, where we're based, uh, one in 10 acres is certified organic. Yeah, now we're talking. Yeah, we're 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 the leading state in California. So it is possible. 
So, I, you know, this is, I have a lot of questions that, uh, that kind of bubbled up from that. I think the first is like, what is the, so we know that there's a ton of opportunity to transition. We know that a lot of organic that's being supplied to the United States market is coming from imports. There seems to be a little bit of dissonance in that when I think organic, I think I am creating or I am investing in better for people, better for planet ecosystems. And when consumers are facing these choices, where does organic, local, and seasonal fall in, uh, in, in order of priority? Of course, if we have the means, if we have access, right, if we can afford to buy local, to buy seasonal, and to buy organic, it's a no-brainer. It, it would almost be, it almost is a responsibility to do so. If you're not, it's, it's, it's a, I would say, a disservice to the, you know, to the world. But um not everyone does. And so customers have to make hard, hard decisions. You know, if I'm looking at a box of cereal that's organic, I, I'm kind of assuming that it's maybe not coming from you know, the States. Or if I'm looking at berries, you know, grown in Chile that are certified organic, but it's the middle of winter. How do I, how do I navigate those decisions? Yeah. How do you navigate those decisions? How do I navigate these decisions? You know, that question has changed a lot in the last year. Like, where do where does my food come from? I am incredibly privileged. I have a white-collar job. My husband teaches at the University of California, Santa Cruz. We live in Santa Cruz, California, where there's five different health food stores and right. five farmer's markets and where I can – I can't quite walk to a grocery store, but I can bike to a grocery store in 10 minutes, several yeah. of them. Uh, so food access for me is hasn't been part of the equation um, but I'll answer it for myself and then I can talk about broadly over the last year, my consumption habits have changed hundred percent in a bunch of different ways. Uh, I, the pandemic opened up my reality to redesign my life to make time to go to the farmer's market. Mm. And I don't know how many of your listeners might think that farmer's markets are passe, but they're the number one way for you to be able to access produce that's grown locally or somewhat locally to your community and they are pretty widespread in the U.S. at this point, thankfully. Um, yeah. So I do 100% of our produce shopping at the farmer's market. And I was thinking about the season right now, kind of going into this, the season. Um, I didn't get any corn last year because it's really hard to grow corn in the tri-county area where I live. And nobody brings corn to the market. So I was like, okay, here we go. We're going into another year without corn. How should I, should I shop somewhere else to get corn? I was thinking about it. Um, we also have a pretty substantial kitchen garden, um, which again comes with privilege. Like we have enough land to plant trees and we've got chickens and that type of thing, but have taken a lot of uh, pride in being able to grow a bunch of our own food. And then I've decided to support the smallest locally owned um, little food uh, I guess it's a what is it? It's a retail outfit, but it used to, it's a it's a used to be a gas station that got redone in Santa Cruz, California. It's called the Food Bin, and they designed. They were early on on the on the curbside pickup game, and so I send them an email list via email, and they pack up a thing for me, and they they uh, they've been loading the back of my pickup truck for the last year. Um, will I go back into a re retail operation? Possibly at some point, but a couple of the different 
retail natural food stores in Santa Cruz were recently bought by a overseas conglomerate. And mm. I'm, I am definitely focused on how to keep money as local as possible. Yeah. So when people ask me about where should I buy things and how can I make the most difference? I think the best things that folks can do is become agriculturally literate, start to understand yeah. what grows in your region and when it grows and where you can access food that's grown in your region. And luckily in the U.S., we have pretty good food labeling laws. So country of origin is printed on most packages for packaged food. Um, and just becoming, just starting to understand that uh, blueberries don't grow year round where you live and raspberries probably don't either. Um, right. So what is it that's available uh, in, your, in your food system? Uh, and, and when is it available? And I, there's tricks that you'll start to learn as you pay attention. If you can shop at a farmer's market, if you can get access to a CSA in your local yeah. area, if there is an urban garden where you're, you're living that you can go down and start to make friends with folks just to, just to look and see what they're growing and how they're growing it. Even if you can't buy something from them, you will start to understand what produce looks like when it is fresh. You will yeah. start to understand what it looks like when it is uh, less packaged and when it hasn't been frozen or thawed or shipped. And the closer you can get to your food source, I think that that's the number one step for folks. Because the closer you get, the more you understand about how food is produced. And the more you understand about how food is produced, the more you can start to differentiate between folks' practices, like yeah. uh, organic or regenerative or whatever the, the moniker is that, that people are using. And probably the less, uh, the less dis predisposed we are to waste it. I, right. And I think like I've always <clears throat> found so much inspiration in the victory gardens that were that were planted and, you know, sort of re reclaiming our own access to food and saying, hey, like if I have even a little three by three plot, let me let me try growing something. I think aside from the fact that it connects us to the natural pace of life, which is so important now more than ever, as we're engaging with more technology and we're zipping through, you know, our days at light speed, um, any of any, any sort of hyper local uh, food substitutes, if you're growing it, your neighbor is growing it or whatever makes a difference. And, you know, at, at, at the point that victory gardens were, were, planted i think some you know 60 percent of like produce was coming from people's backyards or something crazy like that it was and once again a, some astounding fact i was like i can't believe we did that but it was the patriotic thing to do so i think how do we make you know saving soil investing in local economies eating the right kind of food sacrificing the fact that i'm craving a, a berry in the middle of winter how do we how do we make that not only you know um patriotic, but just kind of like second nature. So I think you bring up a, a lot. And, and I think that one of the fascinating things I'd love to hear from you is what opportunity do these agricultural systems have to address the most pressing, you know, uh, issue of, of the moment uh, mm -hmm. and, and of over the last many years, might I add, uh, which is climate change. Absolutely. I'll, I just wanted to touch on one more thing that folks can do in their kind of day-to-day -day reality. People often talk about how organic food is inaccessible. And uh, I've done a bunch of research on this. And food, uh, more expensive food, organic does 
cost more in lots of different settings, although there's huge inroads with national um, grocers like Costco and whatnot to bring down the right. price of organic. But um, processed food costs more. So the less processed your food is, the more you're going to save. And there's a fabulous manual called Good and Cheap by Leanne Brown, uh, who uh, lived for a couple of years on the food stamp diet and did mm. so organically. It's called Eat Well on $4 a Day, Good and Cheap. And it's a free PDF online. And it really looks at how can you simplify your diet and build a pantry um, of sauces and things that make things taste good for very simple food and do so organically and buying seasonally. I How love do do that. I, w- I, I, want, I want to dig into that as soon as I get off, as soon as we're done with this, because, uh, you know, the, the crux of it to me too is what's the true cost of food, right? And I think we're so disconnected. We spend the least amount of money on food. We spend the most amount of money on healthcare. No one's drawing the line or very few people are drawing the lines and saying, oh, wow, you know, this bag of chips is inexpensive, um, and delicious, but really what is the cost here and what is the cost to not only my human health, but what are the unseen and unclaimed costs of these corporations, whether it's the plastic or the corn or the, you know, the, the disposal of all of these toxic, you know, um, chemicals used along the lines of production. So I think that, you know, I've always had a dream of exposing the true cost of that dollar tomato, you know, grown in the middle of winter in Florida and saying, in fact, it's more expensive than the $5 a pound farmer's market tomato. And instead of giving your money to someone who really could care less about you or where, or your money, or they care about your money, I suppose, but you care less about you or the environment, you know, give it to someone who, give it to someone uh, who, where it matters. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, and I think investing in organic, we were talking about Organic is a solution. For us, organic is a solution to climate change. We know that organic farmers are investing in their soil and they're building soil organic matter, which makes farms more resilient to climate change. Soil organic matter, high soil organic matter means that farms, uh, organic farms on average store 14 times as much carbon as conventional farms. Uh, Soil organic matter high levels means that farms can retain more water and be more water resilient in times of drought. Uh, mm-hmm. Organic farms tend to be more biodiverse. So if you have major climate um, things happening, some crops may get waterlogged or blown over, but if you have more biodiversity on your farm, you're likely gonna have a more resilient ecosystem. It's about building resilient ecosystems. And we know that organic farms are better for local economies. Organic food tends to circulate in a much smaller area. Part of that's just because of the economy and scale of the majority of organic, certified organic operations. Um, Many of them, 14% of CCUF's members sell through a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture Program. That's a huge percentage of our thousands of members are selling directly to their community. Many more sell through through local retail institutions. So not wholesalers where they're selling it across the country, but local retail institutions uh, and farmers markets as well, farm, farm, farm stands, that type of thing. And there's been some fabulous um, data that's been gathered uh, and publicized through the Organic Trade Association, just about the local economic benefit of organic businesses. So that's both farms and also processing and handling operations. They tend to provide year-round employment to folks. They tend to pay better wages. They tend to offer health insurance. A lot of benefits that folks don't get 
working in other aspects of the agricultural uh, industry. Uh, we also know that organic farms are more uh, foster health equity, right? So if you think about all the environmental externalities, which is a way of saying off-farm repercussions of conventional agriculture, you're looking at uh, nitrates in your water, you're looking at uh, dust that is carrying pesticides, you're looking at pesticide drifts in communities, uh, you're looking at farms that are abutting rural communities and creating toxic environments for people who live there, not just people who work on the farm, but also people who live in the surrounding area. Um, and we know that organic farming mitigates almost all of those risks. You can have an organic farm that's right next to a school. You know why? Because they're not spraying pesticides. It's not going to drift on the kids. There's actually been some, some laws in California that have been passed about when farms that are next to schools uh, can, can spray pesticides and not, and hoping to, with the imagination of hoping to transition a bunch of those farms towards organic, because it is, um, it's unconscionable that we allow farms to use products or uh, that they're encouraged to use products that are toxic to human health. And people don't use that word very much. Like, what is it? What is a toxin? There's, there's very few things that are acutely toxic, but it's long-term toxicity. It's body loading. It's uh, fetal development. It is messing with your endocrine system. And yeah. while it might not uh, occur to you in that one minute while you're eating an apple, um, it might affect your children if you're a woman that's got babies in your body. I know it is absolutely horrifying. And I, you know, one of the things that you, that, that I thought of when you were sharing your story initially is like, we can eat vegetables and, you know, fruits and all these things in abundance and, you know, stay away from processed foods and be, you know, quote unquote healthy. But really we can't unless <laughs> that food is coming from an organic source, right? Like ultimately you can consume a healthy diet, but if it is covered in pesticides, we can't see smell. And sometimes you can taste, I can taste it particularly with strawberries, you know, like we're actually doing ourselves a disservice. Um, that is what is so scary to me. And it is so scary that we can have this false sense of security or what seems to me is a false sense of security of what we eat and what, and, and, and the freshness of it. Um, and it's ultimately, we will pay the price down the road. We, we may feel good about our choices at the moment because I'm deciding to eat a bell pepper or strawberry, but if that is covered in pesticides, you know, it's going to, it's going to come back and, and bite, um, bite us in the ass. So, or, you know, all the systems probably in our body. So it, that, I mean, that's, that's pretty bleak. And I think that um, one of the questions that, you know, I, I want to be respectful of time is like, it is a no brainer to be investing in organic in regenerative or even organic practices. I mean, forget about certification. If, if a farmer doesn't have the access or, you know, if they're, if they're struggling to go through the certification process, like, take a note from the practices. Let's just invest in organic practices. It's a no brainer, but clearly there are roadblocks. Why is organic not more prolific? Why do we think of it as 
something that is more expensive than lack of access when we know over time it produces, you know, higher quality product, higher yields, all these things. What are the roadblocks? I mean, why yep. is this such an issue? So let me start by saying I respect anyone who chooses to farm, regardless yeah, of how agreed. they choose to do it. Farming is really hard. We live in a country where folks do not pay a high percentage of their household income towards food. So it's a few percentage higher just over the season in Europe. But in the U.S., uh, the average household food budget is yeah. roughly 8% of folks' household budget, which is, is less than it's ever been. And that's because we've gotten enormously good at creating um, vast amounts of food with minimal human labor input. Only 2% of the American economy right now in workers participates in the agricultural food system as their main bread and butter. That's not a lot of folks. So farming is hard. Any type of farming is hard. Any type of farming, for the most part, is hard to make a living. So it's not like there's farmers out there that are raking it in left and right. Farming is uh, can be disrupted in a half a minute by what climate change effects or act of God, whatever you want to call it, or just a, a freak hailstorm. Yeah. So um, farmers are operating on very slim margins, particularly conventional farm communities that have been sold a get big or get out uh, mentality, which has been encouraged by the USDA. Uh, I think a lot of the structural programs, historical structural programs at the USDA encouraged folks to consolidate farmland and to be more efficient with efficiency as the main metric of success in the farm community, not what are you doing for your farm soil and what are you doing for the ecosystem services and how are you servicing um, and stewarding the resources on your farm. Most folks do that anyway. Most farmers do that anyway. They have to, but that hasn't been what the systems that we've built structurally in the U.S. have, have helped support. So the main barriers to going organic are the cost of transition. When you decide to go organic, you are likely going to have a decrease in your yields because uh, if you haven't been investing in your soil already with uh, green manures like cover cropping or more stable forms of nitrogen, if you're on kind but of a, a temporary it's a temporary in decrease in yields, but you can't certify for the first three years during the transition. So any okay, type so of operation. Yeah. Soil-based operations, when you are transitioning, uh, say you've got a, a, a row crop operation of lettuce, for example, to transition that land, you have to wait three years without adding certain inputs that are prohibited in organic systems before you can certify that crop. So if you're, if you're, it's just simple economics. If your yields go down and you cannot charge more for your food product and you're already not making money or a lot of money, the economic feasibility just doesn't pencil out. So that's right. the first one. The second part is cultural. There are cultural conceptions of what organic means, who grows organic, who eats organic, um, that are significant cultural barriers. They're decreasing here in California because when you have a critical mass, one out of 10 acres in California is certified organic. People can look over the fence and look at their neighbor's operation and go, oh yeah, you know, that doesn't look so bad. And I think that that person is able to make a living and their, their kids are gonna come back to the farm because they see a, mm. a viable future for them. And once you start to have that community conversation, that's next. Um, so financial is first, uh, the community uh, imagination of what organic means, cultural barriers, 
uh, is second. A lack of in-community technical assistance around organic is third. So, for example, cooperative extension agents across the country or uh, input sales providers, they've all been trained in traditional agronomic practices, which have been taught by most of the land-grant universities and public universities in the U.S., um, and they have a very different conception of how farm, what farming is and what soil is useful for. A lot of, a lot mm. of folks with traditional uh, conventional farming backgrounds weren't trained first and foremost in um, soil science and, and working with the natural environment to get that nitrogen into the soil so your, so your crop can be healthy. It's a, it's a different paradigm. That is shifting very, very radically across the U.S. There's all kinds of new programs in organic farming at big, big uh, universities, so Iowa State University and Washington State University and uh, Cornell and upstate New York. Um, and there's a, a huge kind of groundswell movement of, of folks, younger generation folks who are getting into uh, ac uh, those positions, extension agents and also academics who are creating the opportunity for folks to learn a different way of farming. Um, yeah, part of it's also generational. It, they're, uh, the farming community in the US for the most part is pretty old. Uh, yeah. folks who are making the decisions on farm and this is the way they've been doing it and this is the way their parents did it and it's pretty hard to convince people who are in their like you know 50s 60s 70s who have been doing it moderately successfully making it happen paying the bills right. for decades that they want to make this this leap into mm -hmm. the uncertainty uncertainty right. is already baked into farming so adding additional uncertainty is huge mm -hmm. so yeah it's these although two doesn't it mm -hmm. sorry go ahead I was just going to say, we try to address all those issues. Like we yeah. come up with money for fit folks to help transition to subsidize it. We put them in right. touch with folks who look like them and talk like them and likely go to their same church so that they can like make the, have the conversation around the, the, right. the coffee pot about, Hey, did this work for you? And wow, that seems to be like something I can relate to. And wow, it seems like it's working for you economically as well. And then we also try to create community support through uh, extension service and local nonprofit organizations, farm organizations. You know, we work with a farm bureau and we work with other um, National Young Farmers Coalition, like other farm organizations that are farmer first to get that conversation happening. And we recognize that not everybody needs to get certified. Like it isn't necessarily right. about certification. That's like how we address the paradigm, how we work, work towards it. Um, right. But if it's, if that's not useful, uh, the main outcome that we're looking for are the practices that people are right. implementing soil building practices and cover cropping and polycultures and habitats for beneficials, because that's really, that's really what's going to make the change. That's what's going to make the change for the planet and for the soil and for their community and ultimately for that farm operation. Um, yeah. Well, that was incredible. I, <laughs> I mean, so thoughtful and I appreciate you running through that in such a thorough way. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to, to educate. Um, if there were three last question, if there were three things you wanted people to know about the state of the planet, the state of organics, either scare them into action or provide, you know, a, a true a piece of information that is actionable, um, what would they be? The first thing is that there's hope. <laughs> Organic is a solution. 
to environmental (laughs) degradation, to climate change, to health inequity, uh, to economic inequality, particularly in rural communities. Organic is a solution to those things. The second is that folks have power. You have power and agency in the way that you leverage your household food budget. What do you choose to bring into your household? How do you, how do you um, make the best change in your family? Start with cooking with people. Bring people into your household. Cook them tasty food. Love people. Cook them tasty food. Talk about where you got the food. Talk about the questions that you have about the food, where it came from, what you're trying on what you think the impacts of it are, who you met along the way, your food system. It's one of the best ways for people to learn. And the third one is don't forget your political power because there is a lot of um, structural uh, adjustments that can happen in our country about how we subsidize and support different types of agriculture uh, through the USDA, but also through state level programs and paying attention to how your representatives are talking about food and agriculture and who they choose to support with your taxpayer money and the programs that they're uplifting. Uh, I've been really heartened to hear a lot of, of word from the, the national government right now tying food and agriculture systems directly to climate change and talking about how we can ameliorate uh, climate change with agricultural practices. And I'm like, hell yeah somebody up there is listening. So support that conversation, get engaged uh, at your local level and also at your national level and uh, participate. Jesse, thank you so much. Uh, And might I add, when you buy organic high quality food and you're cooking for your friends and family, all you really need is a little salt, pepper and lemon. And it is way better than anything else you can do. So simple always tastes better. Um, but Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me To I learned so much. I'm really, really grateful. Um, and for sharing all the incredible work that you do at CCOF and beyond California certified organic farmers, Jesse Beckett Parr, you are truly a hero. Thank you for all the work that you do. And, uh, thank you for being, being here. All right. Thanks, Gabe. Take care.